There we go. We're recording. Wait, I'm being recorded. I'm out of here. <laughs> you did not consent to this. That's not not at all. So you got new glasses or something? New camera? You guys, you got a new look going on. Just MacBook Pro, 14 inch, uh-huh. the M1. There we go. Nice, nice. My, I think my mom still has my like very first Intel MacBook Pro hmm. from like 2006. It was a Core Duo, Ooh. And, and it was it was the first one with the Mag port, and. Uh, like they actually still had like latches. So when you when you pulled the screen down, there were magnetic latches that would come out of the screen and like hook into the base. And then you actually mm. had like a button to like unlatch it. I mean, this is yeah, you know, amazing <laughs> stuff. It didn't have the <laughs> unibody, but uh, man, that, that computer was, I love that computer. What's up everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Beam Radio. I am Sophie Benedetto, and I am joined by co-host Alex Kutmos. Hey, Alex. Howdy, howdy. And Stephen Nunez. Hello there. Hey, Stephen. Uh, so we've got a slightly smaller panel for you guys today and a couple of fun things on the agenda. I think what I'm going to do is just jump in and hand it over to Alex first, who is going to introduce our first topic. And it centers on a new open source library, I think, that you have to tell us about. Indeed. Yeah, I was uh, working on a new library and I just published the, I don't know, I don't remember what version it is. I'll have to look it up and we'll, we'll add it to the show notes. But uh, it is stable and it is working in production on, uh, on a few apps. So it's definitely worth taking a look at, but it's called uh, MJML EEX. And it's used to create uh, responsive and uh, cross-email client compatible, beautiful emails. And so MJML is actually a templating language that uh, you write your email in in MJML uh, XML, and then that gets compiled into HTML that'll work on all um, uh, email clients. Because apparently email clients are even worse than browsers. And... uh, writing a nice email that looks the same across all the clients is a very, very tough job. So there are tools uh, created just for making that job easy. So think like the jQuery of, uh, of email templates back in the day. Make something so, awful a bit less awful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and this is the first time I'm hearing about MJML. You didn't write that. That's sort of like a language that, or um, I guess a markup language or flavor that lets you write these like responsive emails. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And actually the original project was, uh, I think it came from the, the JavaScript community. So there's a, um, a node library that actually compiles MJML templates into HTML, but then there's also a Rust project that does the same thing. And luckily somebody in the Elixir community actually wrapped that in a NIF. So I use that. And then I have a whole bunch of EEX uh, niceties in there. Uh, so we have the same thing that we have in uh, uh, in Phoenix, where you can have like inner content and you can kind of templatize these MJML templates. And so that makes it really easy. So then you can have a uh, kind of like a, a consistent theme across all of your emails in your applica- uh, applications, where you know the banner is the same, the footer is the same, and maybe you're just swapping out the body every time. So it kind of makes your all of your email templates uh, uh, nice and dry and uh, easy to reuse. So I love this concept. I was, I was, um, the idea of sort of like using, um, an existing sort of base language and then like wrapping it with the EEX, uh, parsing. Sophie and I were talking about doing something weird. Um, I'll, I'll take you down the rabbit hole, but please uh, do. So, uh, yeah. So and I, bu- you have my interest now when you said weird. buckle up listener, you're about to get full galaxy brain for a second um so i saw i there was a library for like 
uh, server side Phoenix channel connections that came out recently. I'll put it in the show notes. I don't remember the name of the project now, but I'll put it in the show notes. Um, and I was like, you know, it'd be awesome. Now that we have it on the server, you have it on, you know, your local machines. Wouldn't it be awesome if we had like live view for like the, the shell, right? So like your output is the shell. Uh, you can like dynamically update things and render from the server side and send down chunks and re-render them on the, on, in your terminal. So that sent me down a big, big rabbit hole. Um, I found a great library, uh, an Elixir library called Ratatouille. Uh, Ratatouille? Ratatouille? It's named after, you know, the dish. Uh, Sophie is our resident Italian. What's, uh, what am I, what's the pronunciation there? Isn't it French? Shows you what I know. <laughs> I mean, French I'm basing person. this entirely on the Disney movie, Pixar That's, movie, Ratatouille. That is, one, that that is 100%. That takes place in France. Yes. Wait, is so, France not in Italy? Is that what I'm I mean, debatable, debatable. Okay, it's up in the air. Uh, so this, this library sort of does a lot of stuff, but there's like a templating component that I was like, I wish I could do markup for uh, text UIs. So I'm definitely going to dig into your, um, your implementation and see how you sort of, you know, built the pipeline for winding up with the MJML, but injecting Elixir code, uh, and then maybe even take it one step further and see if you can, we can build one that essentially converts down to function calls. Um, so I'm very excited to see more about this. Uh, and if you want to see me actually build this uh, live view for your terminal, I don't know, send me a tweet or something. Say, we want this. If you don't want it, if you think it hurts the world, also tweet at me and tell me you don't want this because that's also possible. Are you going to live stream this on Twitch as you're building it? So I, I am trying to line up, uh, you know, some good, some good content for, for the old Twitch. That might be a, a good thing. You know, Twitch is interesting because you want to find a balance of things that where you don't look completely foolish doing it, but it's also like, you know, live-ish that you get, you get the struggle. Um, you know, anyone who's paired with me knows that a lot of it is just like struggle for a long time and it's like, aha, and then it just sort of works. Yeah, I've always debated having like a Twitch and like working on my open source libraries on Twitch, but I don't know. I, I feel like that's, there's too much effort up front of like setting up the, like the screen sharing and too much logistics. I can't, I can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. The good news is I think once you have it set up, then you can be lazy and then just say, no, this is branding this terrible setup with like, you know, the worst lo-fi ah, in the world going, that's, that's, that's my you... branding. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm definitely gonna look into the MJML thing and definitely look into Alex's library, write all of your emails in there, send more emails. You know, the world needs more emails, send more emails. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the biggest, uh, I think the biggest one for this is, uh, I don't know if, uh, you know, you guys have sent a lot of emails from your applications before, but like usually the way that I've seen it done, is like, you'll have like send grid or what are some of the other ones? Um, uh, like MailChimp. And so, MailChimp so you'll have your, yeah. yeah, you'll have your template living on the, like that SaaS service. And then you'll get like an ID back. Uh, and then in your application, be like, hey, you know, this is the the ID that I'm going to send along with my payload to Mailchimp, and here are like some very basic like um, you know template like variable swapping things, kind of like handlebars style stuff. But it's like that's ridiculously hard to test now. You you can't necessarily write like a good test in uh, X unit for that unless you you know make an actual call to Mailchimp, and then you have to you know find some virtual mailbox to check that your your templates were actually swapped. So one of the benefits of this is your your templates are actually getting compiled and all it's all happening locally. So writing um, you know tests for your emails ridiculously easy. Uh, the other nice thing is you're not kind of uh, you know limited by anything that your email SaaS provider will do. So usually you'll just get like you know 
simple variable swapping. But let's say your emails are pretty complicated. Maybe you're doing like uh, like an invoice in an email, and you need to actually iterate through you know some some ecto schemas and, and output that stuff. Ridiculously hard to do with Mailchimp. So you know with, with so, something like MJML EX, you know the sky's the limit. You can do kind of any kind of email, and it's super dynamic. And with that, does it does do these mail providers? I haven't done much, oddly enough, in my career. I've kind of avoided sending email or designing emails, so I count myself lucky from what I've heard. But with these, with uh, Mailchimp and uh, SendGrid, can you send them? Just be like, no, send this HTML. Like you provide it and then send it to them, or are you setting up your own SMTP setup and kind of like going down down that route? Yeah, so I I currently use Mailgun for most of my stuff, and yeah, you can just send the entire HTML payload, and uh, they'll just send it, you know, without any kind of massaging or anything like that. That's really so, cool. That's very cool. Yeah, which, yeah, which is really nice. So I've yeah, all the uh, transactional emails that I send in my full time job are all done through my uh, MJML EEX library, and we're we're having pretty good luck there. So it's uh, it's been cool. it's been battle tested. Um, I have one question that I always like to ask people that have written an Elixir library, which is what did Elixir lend to solving this problem that you feel like was particularly awesome? I'd say there's a couple of things. The one that comes to mind first would probably be the, like how, how nice working with macros is in Elixir. Uh, there's, there's a little bit of macro magic happening, uh, just depending on how you want to compile your templates. Um, so in the, in the library, I support either compiling it at compile time. So it'll actually run like either the, uh, the Rust sniff, or it'll reach out to your, your node, um, uh, CLI command and actually compile it at compile time. So you'll have the full HTML right then and there, uh, you know, at compile time, as opposed to doing it at runtime that has some limitations. If your templates are super complex. But um, if your templates are re really complex and you want to do that at runtime, you also have that ability. So the the macro is uh, you know the the tools that you have at your disposal when writing macros made that you know ridiculously easy. So that's uh, that's that's really cool and really powerful. And I think the other nice thing in Elixir is how nice EEX is and how extensible it is. So I had to write my own engine for this to to hook into uh, EEX and actually. Uh, deal with some some uh, uh, MJML goodness, but uh, extending EEX was super nice and easy. And there's actually a really nice blog post that I had to reference a few times, and I can't remember off the top of my head. We'll get this also in the show notes. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'd say those are probably the two big things. Uh, yeah, that and ports actually. So three mm, ports. ports are really yeah. nice. my favorite. Uh, ports my are favorite. really nice. Ports are Stephen's favorite. I love ports. Yeah. So yeah, the the Rust sniff you know, ridiculously easy. I could just call it like a function call. But for people that want that want to use the node compiler for some reason, um, you know, let's say there's not parity between the Rust sniff and the 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 node compiler. Um, I had to, you know, I had to reach for an, a port there and call the node, uh, um, you know, CLI tool, compile it, and then get that back into into Elixir. And ports made that ridiculously easy. And yeah, uh, yeah I love ports. How was, how was working with the NIF? I mean, I know we've got Rustler and we've got, essentially it seems like it's, really easy to bring in a rust library you know how what was that sort of what was that process like um how much rust do you need to know to do this because i see i sometimes look at rust products and i'm like i want i want that but i don't want to build it i want that thing like you know a, an idiot like me uh like what, what what's sort of the process of of integrating a nif of rust i guess binary into an Elixir project 
Yeah, so with, uh, I can't remember the version of, of Rustler, but one of the more recent versions of Rustler, um, you could act, it actually has support for downloading like a pre-compiled, a pre-built uh, binary. Awesome. Um, so you don't even need to compile anything locally anymore. So it used to be that you needed to have like uh, cargo and Rust cargo. and everything yeah, all yeah. installed locally, and it would compile it as it's compiling the Elixir project. But now it'll just, uh, it'll fetch the pre-compiled uh, binary and bring it down for your environment, depending if the library supports that. So the um, the M MGML like uh, NIF that I'm using, that library, does support that. So you don't actually need uh, Rust or Cargo or anything when you're using MGML EEX. That's awesome. So just pull down a pre-compiled binary and then you've got the, you've got a way to like hook up the function calls in Elixir to the, to the uh, Rust modules and then Yep, exactly. Yeah. And I, that, that MGML NIF library, I think it just exposes that one function call that's like compiled a string. And uh, yeah, I just, I just call that in, uh, inside of my uh, library after it does all the EEX uh, transformations. That is so cool. I got to learn. I got to learn to at least read Rust, you know, at least read it. I have the, what is it, Rust in action? I'm a sucker for, for manning books and prag prog books. But uh, yeah, have the Rust. Not, not sponsored, book. not yeah, sponsored, not, but yeah, you know. not sponsored. Give us a Especially call. Especially the, the that, that Weather Station book. I don't know who wrote it, but it's it's phenomenal. Nerves, I, I, Weather yeah, Station. They're incredibly stuff. good looking and yeah. so smart. It's uh, it's wild. You can tell. Never heard of it. Never. Heard of it. <laughs> that's it. They also have this like Phoenix Live book book that's really good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, at least the first half is. I can't tell you how good the second half is. <laughs> it's now so out of date, though. Oh my god! Every time. Uh, every time I read the live you change log, I just like die a little bit. I do torture. I mean, I'm Sophie. so excited. I do torture Sophie a little bit. Every time something new comes in, I was like, Hey, you know, that function call it's different now. It's totally different. It's all just, they just keep changing. They keep for changing the better, things for the better. I don't know. I haven't looked through it too much yet for our listeners. Yes. The live you book is out of date. Um, I'm just kind of holding back doing another big update because we already have like a non-trivial set of changes to address. Uh, and I think it's probably going to keep going in that direction. Although that wouldn't have been what I said a couple months ago. So I think we're just going to hang back and kind of let it mature a little bit and try to get as close as possible to one before we do another revision. Um, yeah, I think, I think the big changes, you know, being the Heek stuff kind of like started mm -hmm. to bring in things like slots and then the com things. Yeah, into components. Those, I got, those I got in there. Those are from a couple months ago. Um, okay. But yeah, I think to sort of build on that, I think a lot of this stuff that's come in lately has been stuff that's being sort of slowly adopted from Surface. So, you know, mm -hmm. thank you, Marlis and Surface creators for continuing to drive that forward. And I think the latest thing that I glanced at, I didn't spend too much time with the change log yet, is um, getting closer to declarative assigns, mm -hmm. which is definitely something borrowed from Surface. So that's pretty cool too, just being able to kind Can you of- you describe that a little bit? Yeah, so it's basically an API. Um, I can talk more about it from the service perspective because I haven't looked too deeply into the change log yet, into the latest live view um, changes. So I might be a little bit off base in terms of exactly how it's now part of the live view core. But in service, you have this concept of declarative assigns, and it's very similar for what you might be used to seeing in something like a React component, where you have your props that you pass in from a parent when you're calling that component versus that internal state of the component, like bits of data that you're establishing only within the component. Same thing in your surface components. You have, um, I'm going to maybe get the keywords wrong, but you have props, which come in from the parent, and then you have data, 
which are parts of a science that you only establish and update within that component exclusively. And both of these things, things that come from the props declaration and the um, data declaration, when you define them in your component, all go into socket assign, but it's just kind of like a neat API for you as a developer and for the readers of your code to say, okay, these are the things that come in from above, you know, that I receive from, you know, up the chain of parent live view. And these are the things that are internal and exclusive to this component. That's really cool. Yeah. Can you do uh, yeah. types by the way, for, I know it would react yep. one mm -hmm. of the nice things that you can do types for, I'm expecting yes. these props. I expect them to be this type. Exactly. Right. That's exactly right. And then that you get more so linting cool. on that, which is really nice. Oh, that's nice. really nice. Yeah. That's very cool. Um, cool. So but it's just I, sort of I'm, more organization around components. I'm guessing that changes the whole book though. Um, yes, <laughs> changes the whole book and I have a lot of work to do. They also changed um, like the live navigation function. So now there's no more like live patch, live redirect. I think it's, I mean, it's, it works the same way. Like these are still the concepts of how you navigate, but there's just different syntax around calling them. Um, what else changed? A change that I haven't made, but that is not even too new at this point is now when you run the live view generator, a lot of what it generates is different. It used to generate this whole like modal infrastructure and now that's all changed. Um, yeah, I'm just gonna go write a new book real quick. <laughs> real quick. That's both a good thing and a bad thing. But the, yeah. the library yeah. is, yeah, I mean, is evolving, getting better. But exactly, then... exactly. No, I'm like I'm in a sour mood about it because it is like a lot more work for me right now. But you know, don't mistake me. All these changes are absolutely good things. The framework is becoming more mature. And I've said this before, but this is what something that I really appreciate about Chris McCord and the rest of the team working on LiveView. They are so actively engaged with the community's usage of LiveView. They are so attuned to how people are using it, what struggles they're finding. And that's why there's been this rapid pace of development. And I think that's amazing to see. So, you know, I think good things are gonna continue to come down the pipe there. Yeah. Yeah. I I would rather I would rather see the library iterate based on on usage and what we learn. You know, I yes. think there's only there's only so much that we can learn. I mean, obviously there's some concepts that were inspired by even React and other declarative mm -hmm. UI um, you know, frameworks and libraries. But the, you know, we do and love live view because it's it, we think it's special. We think it has this um really kind of like game-changing aspect of the live updates. And invariably you're gonna run into Mm -hmm. new problems because yeah. you know it's not it's not you it's not the norm for even in react to get your updates over a web socket right mm -hmm. um you're going to make an api call you're going to respond to a user input callbacks thunks are those still a thing um okay. and yeah i know i know um so i'm happy that we're learning and that we're we're changing it and that we're not afraid to change it because we're mm -hmm. not we're not one oh i think we're going to have to be a little more strict after we get to one oh i would hope um but I think all all good changes. Heeks is still growing on me, but yeah. What don't you like about Heeks? I don't. I mean, you said this to me yeah. a few times, and you haven't convinced me that it's like not good. I I don't think I can convince myself. Okay. The thing is, so I'm I'm becoming the curmudgeonly old man who's just like becoming? stop change, stop ch hey now, hey now. <laughs> no, My you love new hurting. things. You love new things. Um, I I do, and but I I sort of like this is the natural sort of resistance to change, right? Uh, you know, EEX and l-e-e-x they look like e-r-b and i can kind of like get my head around them and it's like no we're doing this other mm. thing which is you don't like the curly cool. bracket interpolation in the html elements I'm, i think it's just like my eyes are not used to it it's very I, newfangled i do see newfangled and fancy i do see the the benefit right i, I think the the syntax of calling you know the dot 
dot function inside mm-hmm. of HTML tags, the ability to lint and the ability to actually parse it out is something that I kind of want in ERB now. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm like, oh, markup is something that we can, we can, you know, make assertions against. And the idea of something like even ERB, uh, not just being like, yeah, we're just going to make a string and send it down to the browser and, you know, it'll figure it mm-hmm. out. Like, no, we have the ability to check correctness. We should be able to. Mm-hmm. So I think I like it in concept. I just don't like it in practice yet. That said, I haven't built much with it yet. Yeah. Uh, and I, I plan on, on getting into some stuff soon. Oh, this is a good chance for us to plug our workshop, which I forgot about it until this moment. You know, I'm, I'm really interested <laughs> in, in learning about live unit. Of course, there's books and like online courses. Sure, but, but they become I, I dated. Wanna... Oh no, now we have to update the course. I know, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> We're, we're mid-pitch, Sophie. All right? Okay, sorry. All right. Oh, Keep my it God. together. Man, if only, if only there was a way. I want to get into a room with some of the smartest Alexa people in the world, you know? I, and then, you know, maybe at a conference or something and just just really focus on live view. You got, you got anything coming up or are you well, working on anything? Is it a requirement that those people also be extremely charming and have the best haircuts? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think- In that case, I think, do I yeah. have the workshop for you? Um, so now that we've hyped that up to an extremely annoying degree, uh, Stephen and I have got a live view workshop coming up at ElixirConf in September in Denver. We are super excited. This is the first time we'll be teaching together in person since not even before the pandemic, but since we both worked at Flatiron, I think. So it's going to be like a, yeah, it's going to be really special to us, but, um, we have, a course that we've been working on that I just had the epiphany that we'll have to make a million changes to. So come and help us help us learn all the new things about the latest version of LiveView. Um, I think the the sort of pitch, the hook for this course is that you will be like production ready in LiveView. You know, you'll spend a day with us and I feel that we can get you to a point where you can be, you know, writing LiveView professionally. Obviously there's plenty of things that we won't get into in just, you know, six hours, but we'll give you the foundation you need kind of spark that curiosity. We'll show you how to do all kinds of cool things. So yeah, it'd be cool to see yeah. our listeners there. That would be neat. Out of curiosity, sure. do, you, do you guys pull in like any like Alpine JS or Tailwind stuff to kind of go, to kind of like dive and dabble a little bit into the pedal stuff or is yeah. it all strictly live view? That's yeah. a great question. We haven't talked about it. Um, the course that we're going to be using is we're going to kind of build off of the course that I put together for MPEX, but we'll, you know, certainly be changing it and making some additions. I would love to bring in some more pedal stack stuff, um, but I think it might be a little ambitious in one day. I know that Steven has done some cool tailwind stuff, so maybe we can kind of just sneak things in there and give people a chance to explore. Um, but we did uh, recently sign up a new author to Prague Prague who's going to be putting out a pedal stack book that will get into all of the Alpine and the Tailwind goodness. It's a little early days to tell you guys too much about that, but I'm really excited for that book to come out. That's something that I feel like there's been a hole in the community from a perspective of like, here's the sort of manual on how you assemble the stack. So I think it's going to be really cool. Oh, that's really yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. I remember taking uh, one of Chris McCord's. Um... Uh, courses but it was a two-day course i think it was like uh was it 2018 this is when he announced mm-hmm. live but yeah. I, had, I had the course with uh with chris and then he had like the closing keynote and then he talked about live view but cool. it was like uh doing over like uh you know channels and presence and stuff like that mm-hmm. but yeah see if you guys can make it a two-day live view course that would be fun that, that would actually be cool. all Maybe the, all the will, pedal. actually yeah maybe we'll talk to jim because there are there two days of workshops anyway we'll figure it out but it would be really okay. neat we'll do the other uh, second day um, in the parking lot you know exactly like, skip the i'll bring like a yeah, i'll bring like a harness and it'll just like come circle around my laptop it's exactly fine. We'll 
Uh, I mean, there's plenty of room. I don't know if you guys have been to the previous ElixirConf in Denver. I think it's the biggest hotel in the world. I think it's the biggest building in the world. It's like the Titanic dropped from space into the Rocky Mountains, and then you're just like in this hotel. Um, I think it would take about six hours to circumnavigate the hotel. So we will find some space to do impromptu additional high-view learning sessions. Yeah, sounds very charming. It has a lazy river. To talk about the the course a little bit, the one, you know, I think listeners might think like, oh, six hours, how am I going to be production ready? But I think that that's sort of the beauty of like live view and like yes. how it fits in is that essentially you are just fitting into, you're leaning on a ton of stuff that you know already. Um, and we're just helping you make your existing code better. And then to hook into the live view, uh, essentially the life cycle of things. So, mm -hmm. you know, believe, believe if you, if you're working in Phoenix today, if you're, you know, familiar with the, with Phoenix as it is right now and don't know anything about live view, you're going to get a ton out of this workshop. So make sure you check it out. Link in the show. Yeah. Notes. Yeah. I think, um, that really is the beauty of live view is that if you have a Phoenix foundation, um, you, you pick it up really quickly. And so much of what's great about LiveView is that it has absorbed into the framework all of the kind of hard, repetitive, and tedious parts of like programming Phoenix or even just building an interactive web application. So we really get to focus in the limited time we have with you on, first of all, sort of the foundation, how it works under the hood. We are going to want you to understand that and we're going to give you that understanding. But then, okay, you want to upload a file? You know, here's six lines of code. Okay, you want, you know, to create a series of nested components, like, you know, here's how you do it in 20 minutes. LiveView just makes things easy because there's like a sane home for pretty much everything you want to do to build out even a really interactive UI. You want real-time distributed updates? Here's two lines of code that hooks in pubs up. You know, am I, am I hooking you on it? I, you know, I think our listeners are probably a little bit on the LiveView train already, but um, I think the fact that we feel confident that we can get you production ready in one day is a testament to our, of course, amazing teaching skills, um, humble brag, but no, it's, it's really a testament to what a powerful framework it is. Yeah, LiveView is, is pretty awesome, as, as we've probably said a million times. Many times, yeah, yeah. I feel like whenever I talk, I turn this into like LiveView hours, so we can certainly move on. Um, Steven, I have a question for you. Oh boy, oh boy, here we go. So, I mean, previously in your office, you had this lovely uh, Baby Yoda bed sheet that I believe was thumbtacked to your window as a curtain. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, I don't see why you would need to move away from that, but do you perhaps have a real curtain behind your desk now? I do, I do. And it's it blocks out the sun as all good curtains should. It's not blinding. Yeah. This is that is a really bright, yeah, that's not yeah. good. So uh, I bought blackout curtains because I, you know, while I'm not a basement dwelling developer, I feel like I am one at heart. So I want to just mime <laughs> it. I have like a, just like a leaky pipe that I've actually run through the house so that I get that, that moldy smell. Wonderful. Just really trying to, trying to set a vibe here. You know, if there's not black mold, how am I gonna do my best code? That's what I say. <laughs> um, but yeah, I took a week off uh, and I did a bunch of like home improvement stuff, some gardening stuff, but laid down about 30 blueberry, raspberry, strawberry bushes, bought some trees um, and, and put up curtains. I'm most proud of that. The curtain was a long time coming. Wait, if you lay down all those bushes, does that mean that the mountain of cardboard boxes in your garage is diminished? Uh, it's on its way. So I sent Sophie an image of my garage and all of so the cardboard stressful. boxes. It was so scary. They are, it did they're make on me their feel way. better about my garage though. Yeah, I went to, uh, so this is a good segue in. Uh, so I was in Sophie's house. Uh, it was so like, fun. 
Yeah, we went to go we, IRL and bonus, we went to go hang out with Bruce and Maggie and it was amazing. We got some mm-hmm. boat we time, we got boat. some Sophie time. I saw Sophie's garage, not messy at all. Um, it's actually even cleaner now. So, How'd you like the, the boating experience, the, uh, you know, going out to the water? I thought it was amazing to see the boat that they've been living in because it's like a tiny house. I guess that's what a boat is if you're going to do the Great Loop. Um, but they just had so many like clever things in there to make it possible to live their life on this you know, relatively small thing, uh, that I actually wish I could have for my regular life. Like on the boat, there's this flap that comes down and covers the little stove top. It's like, yeah, I want that put my stove away. If I'm not using it, I don't want to see that shit. Um, but it was so cool to see, you know, what they've done with that space to kind of get a sense of how they've been going on this incredible adventure. And it was very nice to understand, you know, when you see Bruce on these calls, you see this tiny slice of boat life behind him. It was nice to put that in context. Yeah. Yeah. I do appreciate uh, the, the boat engineering. They find spaces for everything on, on yeah. boats. I yeah. wish like, and boat, I love boat that. architects could also architect some houses. Cause I totally love, yeah. yeah. I want to, I want a boathouse, but on land with yeah, like, I know, be nooks able and to, crannies like, everywhere. Everything gets strapped uh, down and put away. Um, I think what you're asking for is a studio apartment in Manhattan. Well, actually, I was going to say a friend of mine, a friend that Stephen and I used to work with, this is Anton, his apartment, the kitchen, I love this, I'm obsessed with it. So like where the fridge is, has this little like countertop next to it and all the shelves with like your food and plates and stuff next to that. And it's all sort of flat against this wall. And then there's this like door thing. It's like accordion door. That's just these white panels. It's like these shiny sort of white cabinet panels. And you just close it up and then it's all gone, you guys. There's like no more kitchen. And I just, I'm obsessed with it. I don't want to see any of that. Just put it away. That's it. Put the kitchen away. What are you doing with the kitchen now? Put it away. Yeah, put that kitchen away. So anyway, that was one of the things I liked about the boat. Um, But seeing Bruce and Maggie in person was was obviously such a wonderful treat. Uh, On that note, I'll bring us to the next topic on today's agenda. Steven has a talk that came out from Codebeam last year that is now available online that we of course encourage our listeners to check out. Um, so I wanna hand it over to Steven and I wanna hear a little bit about that talk. Yeah, um, so it was really fun to do. Uh, I was listening to it again this morning and really it's a it's a talk about- Wait, so um, you can listen to your old talks because I cannot. Uh, I, I never I ever have. Well, uh, I think it's, you know, it's a side effect of being a narcissist, I think. So okay. you know, it comes really natural to me. <laughs> Perfect. Um, as you know. Uh, I love all of my work and I'm not critical of it at all. Uh, the talk is mo- it was based around the what can languages sort of work on each work and learn from each other, uh, and it's a case study between some things that um, Elixir got from Ruby, but also some things that Ruby got from Elixir, um, which I, I thought was really fascinating as I sort of watched both ecosystems evolve and sort of co-evolve. Um, I did also take it as an opportunity to just talk about Star Wars for most of the talk. So I want, you know, the, if you're interested in some like some Star Wars history, check out the first bit of it. If not, there are time codes and you can jump and skip all that stuff. Um, but it was really fascinating um, to dive into some of that stuff and some of the newer features that Ruby's getting, um, such as uh, Raptors, which are sort of like the Ruby uh, actor model. Uh, pattern matching is something that Ruby now has as a non-experimental feature and a you know non-trivial implementation that's really good. Um, there's there are concepts of more of a concept of piping um, with the then function that you can essentially chain return values and get a nice 
um, pipeline-like functionality, which is very cool. Um, it's interesting to see how, you know, where does a feature stop being a feature and start being a core part of the language's identity? Um, you know, there are just some things that don't necessarily make sense in Ruby. Uh, you can write functional Ruby, but does it make sense to introduce a pure pipeline to pass function to function to function? Probably not, because you'd probably be implementing a bit of a code smell in Ruby to write in this style. But that said, what do I know? You know, Ruby has influences from Smalltalk and Perl and Bash and a bit of functional languages with, you know, lambdas and partial, you know, currying and all this stuff. So um, yeah, it was, it was definitely fun to, to walk through it. And there's a, a lot of really good examples to see how they work. Um, the pipe gets kind of called out, the reactors get called out. We write a simple gen server implementation in Ruby um, that does a thing. Um, and yeah, we're, essentially what I'm saying is we're like, we're days away from live view in Ruby, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> that's great. Any day now, any day now. Yeah. So how, how much have things changed since you gave that talk? Because I think that talk was what, 2020? Mm -hmm. All right, so we're about two years yeah. after that talk. So how, how have reactors uh, evolved since then? Out of curiosity. So, I'm, I'm totally yeah, disconnected the, from Ruby. I have no idea what's going on there. No, no, it's a really good question, right? I mean, I think, I think reactors have the opportunity to be a very impactful feature at introducing um, you know, actual parallel processing for a language that historically has had that global interpreter lock that only allowed you know, single-threaded programming. There was um, rather single uh, core programming. There is concurrency in the sense of, of time slicing threads and fibers now, um, but I, it hasn't changed much. A lot of the limitations that I talk about in the talk are still there where, uh, with object sharing. And um, ultimately, I think it's one of the limitations that, I, that will, it's going to make it hard for this to, to take off, in my opinion. Um, the, what has changed a good amount and has been worked on a good amount is the idea of the fiber scheduler, which kind of behaves a little bit more like the beam does at like slicing out work. So fibers and fiber schedulers are a way of getting um, work to run concurrently um, in Ruby without the isolation of a reactor, but the isolation of a, of a thread, which I think is a little more uh, native for Ruby. Um, so I'm hopeful that reactors- is, is this outside of the GIL? Um, it's or, still in the GIL. It's still okay. in the GIL. Okay. Um, yeah, but, but the slicing is a little more efficient. So you get a better performance boost. Gotcha, okay. Um, but if you want concurrent, like proper parallelism, you're going to have to fork or, you know, spin up multiple instances of the, of the Ruby VM. Gotcha. Yeah, that was always a problem um, at a previous company I was working at. We had a, a node backend and uh, like once in a while a request would come in and it was just like a ton of CPU bound work that had to be done. And then everything else got hosed on that machine because it was just, it was just servicing that one uh, request and the event loop was blocked. And, uh, you know, I was pushing them. I was like, hey, there's, there's, a, there's a virtual machine out there where this kind of stuff doesn't happen. But I uh, couldn't get my That's way that. there. That's but, uh, okay, yeah. It sounds like this is a common problem in a lot of uh, languages. And usually, the, usually the, um, the solution is just spin up a whole bunch of instances and then just like round robin them. Uh, throw, more, throw money at it. Just throw money at it. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. So well, it's a good thing that they're, they're trying to go into that that direction of concurrency and par parallelism. So hopefully that's no longer an issue in the, in the Ruby ecosystem.
Do you feel, Stephen, that Ruby now has a compelling story to tell around concurrency? And if not, what do you think stands in the way? I, I don't think it has one that is like, you wouldn't go to Ruby for a concurrency story. Not yet, I don't think. Um, there's a lot of, of async primitives that are being brought in um, that I think we can learn a good amount from Node because Node, again, is also single-threaded, but it does off, offload a lot of async tasks, so it, it gives the appearance, or rather it stays uh, less busy. Um, but I don't think you would go to Ruby because the concurrency story is good yet. Um, I think, you know, the Sophie, but like one of the reasons why I was drawn to Elixir originally was, you know, Jose did this amazing, like, task async thing. And I was like, that's it? That's actually doing the thing somewhere else, taking advantage of the, the cores. And he would point to his, his machine, the, 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 the fans going off. Um, and I was like, that's amazing. And I can get my head around it. And I don't think that until it becomes almost mindless to do things concurrently and in parallel specifically, um, I don't think the story is there for Ruby yet. Um, and that could be a library that could be built into the, the, the core of the language, but you know, you do async stuff in node just by using node, right? Like it's natural for things to be sent off. You just call the library does, um, you know, the IO stuff somewhere else and then gives you a callback. Um, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, a it's, it's good that there's attention on it. We know it's important. We know it's, it needs to be worked on. Uh, B, there have been steps, multiple steps taken with the fiber scheduler and then the reactor stuff. Uh, and C, I think it's going to be more, more and more important as we start thinking about what languages to go with, right? Like even the, the story for Crystal Lang, which is like a mm -hmm. expressive Ruby-like um, language. It, they use channels and they have concurrency. So like if you're looking at like the reasons to use Ruby and, you know, the language is nice is one of the reasons, well, then that's not. That's not enough. Yeah. Ruby's got a lot of stuff going for it. Let me not say, you know, Rails is amazing. Mm -hmm. The community is amazing, um, but definitely not for concurrency, not yet. I'd definitely be curious to hear of any um, like concurrent Ruby in the wild stories. I, I don't have any, I don't, I don't know if you guys do, but that's something I want to keep an ear out for. I'm going to ask you a question, Sophie. Mm -hmm. Since you're our resident Go expert. Oh yeah, I me. Mean. <laughs> How do you like uh, programming concurrent problems in Go? So, I mean, I think my biggest problem with it is pretty much the issue that Steve is describing with the concurrency story in Ruby is that it's not, it's not nice. And I don't, I, I want to use that word in um, like, I feel like we throw around this word a lot, but it actually does mean something from a program, programming perspective. Like it's not, um, it's not a pleasure to write concurrent code in Go. It is very difficult to reason about and it's very easy to get wrong. And I think one of the reasons that I have kind of like a little bit of a hang up around it is that some of the like nastiest bugs that I've had to untangle in Go just come from setting up a tiny snippet of concurrency code that just ends up being a little bit off because it is so complex to reason about and to actually orchestrate correctly. And I think that, that that's a huge problem. I don't. I don't understand why people don't complain about that more. And that's something that Elixir has tried to really forefront in the design of the language. It should be, it should be a pleasure to write concurrent code. It should be hard to get it wrong. And this is something that someone said this phrase to me and I can't remember who it was. So I'm, I'm not going to be able to credit them. Um, have you guys heard of the pit of success? 
I, no, it sounds is, familiar. Yeah. yeah, This is cool. You're going to really like this. I think, especially you, Steven, the pit of success, it should be as easy as possible to fall into doing things the right way. And that's like a principle that you want to keep in mind in particular as the author of like a library or a framework or even a language, you want to make it easy for people to do things right, almost by accident and difficult for them to make a mistake. Um, and I, I think, think that concurrency and go, there's absolutely no pit of success. There's just a pit of snakes. I think that was Chris McCord that said that. Now that you're now Did that you're he? describing it, I think it was yeah. conference talk from like 2017. It's, yeah, like I mean, it's it was early days of yeah, There's like a concept. It's definitely a concept. Um, and someone said it to me recently, and I had never heard of it. And I was like, "That's amazing." Of course, I want to create things that make it easy to fall into the pit of success. Who was yeah. that? Who said that? Maybe it was Bruce. I don't know. Anyway. I had the same exact problem with Go. So I, I didn't mm-hmm. tell you my impressions. I didn't want to bias you, but yeah, uh, let's hear them. But yeah, that was like, uh, like setting up the channel was easy and like getting the mm-hmm. two processes to, or the Go threads to, to mm-hmm. communicate was easy. But yeah, like aside from just tutorial style stuff, I found yeah. production use to be far more fragile. Yes, very and, fragile. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And I, I remember at a company that I was at, we had some Go microservices that were doing some concurrency work. And we'd always get these ridiculously weird and esoteric issues. And th- like, there was no way to debug it. It's not as if I can get like a remote console into my Go binary and mm-hmm. start right. you know, picking it apart and seeing, okay, what's what's going on here? Uh, and we eventually rewrote that that microservice in Elixir and the problem just went away. I like that story. Uh, case study. Like rewrite, story rewrite your Go microservices yeah. in Elixir. They make yeah. the problems go away. I think it's just, it's really hard. It's really easy rather to like get your sort of order of operations in terms of what you're blocking and waiting for and how you're collecting messages from those channels incorrectly. And, you know, similarly with a lot of things in Go, I think error handling is a great example. It is very low level. So you do have to do a lot of the heavy lifting, the same heavy lifting again and again and again. And I think that that's something that Elixir's concurrency model has a lot of great abstractions for. Yeah, for sure. And the let it crash, I think paradigm works oh, yeah. works great for, yeah. for processes mm-hmm. like that, where it's like you're in a bad state, whatever, kill it, start yeah, up again. Start again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would I would much rather have that than, than like kill the whole binary or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is this the part of the show where we just gush about how amazing Elixir is? Yeah, right. It's I'm officially ready. that time. Yeah, we're we're at the 40 minute mark. Time to yep. uh, time to gush. Um, yeah, I haven't had uh, any experience with, with production experience with Go. I've gone to it a couple of times, kind of with those toy projects and like explored mm-hmm. some of it. And I don't know. I don't know if, if uh you know I'm just soft or something, but like I don't know. It's it seems like it seems like a lot of work to do something that that should be way easier. Just like the language, the understanding, the the way to structure code is sort of new. And I get that some of that is, you know, just being new to the language and new to the concepts, but it's something I revisit every once in a while. Like I say, like I say, a lot of smart people that I like are say it's good. So either it's a Stockholm uh, syndrome situation or uh, it is good and I'm just missing it. Uh, You know, I keep, I review every few like months I go back and say, all right, time to relearn, Mm -hmm. go. Yeah, I definitely appreciate all the work that's gone into that ecosystem because I definitely lean on it every once in a while. I'm like, oh, there's a nice CLI tool that's written in Go and I can just download this binary and run it. So I definitely appreciate it. Let me just, you know, preface everything mm-hmm. that I'm about to say with that. But yeah, I mean, it's yeah. just it's just not for me. And I've and I have given it an honest try. I just I just can't uh, just can't do it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's not Go. It's me. It's me. <laughs> So now that we've had our requisite conversation about what we don't like about Co and what we love about Elixir, I think we'll wrap it on that note. 
shout out to our sponsor, as always, Graxio, Career Fuel for Programmers. Lots of great stuff coming out. Definitely check it out. And a big thank you to Alex and Stephen for joining me today. And I'll catch you guys next time on Beam Radio.